Good morning, everybody, and welcome to any visitors who are with us today, especially. <coughs> and welcome to summer. You wouldn't believe it if you looked at the weather, but we are now officially into Hillhead summer, which means there is no Sunday school, which means that all our services are broadly all age for the next few weeks. And that means there will be quite a lot of interaction. So I know some people go, oh, no, when we say interaction. The reality is we are all God's children, whether we are nine days old, nine months old, nine years old, or 99 years old. Join in as much as you feel you can. Don't worry if you feel unable to join in. That's fine. But if you're just sort of feeling a bit, I don't think this is right, can I invite you to take the time just to ponder why that might be? Because it might be something about you rather than something about what we're doing. But we are here, above all, to worship God. So let's just be very still and very quiet for a few moments as we become aware that as we gather, God is already here. One day, in response to the comments of other people, Jesus looked at the people sitting around him and said, Look, here are my brothers, my mother, and my siblings. Whoever does what God wants is my brother, and my sister, and my mother. The Apostle Paul, writing to the young Timothy, said, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Look at the people sitting around you. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. How do you relate to them? These people who are your sisters and brothers. Who is it that you should revere? Who is it that you should encourage? I wonder what sort of a family, what kind of a household we are. All the material we're using today is based on that which is in the roots uh, material that we're going to be moving towards using in the autumn. So the summer is a chance for us to begin to experiment with that. So the prayers we're going to use this morning come from there with a few tweaks here and there. We're going to come first to come close to God and to praise God and say thank you. So let's pray together. Gracious God, you have always been there, long before any of us was even an idea. You were there when our grandparents' grandparents were children, and even before that. That is truly amazing. Loving God, you are here right now, even though we can't see you. You know every single one of us by name and have made each of us a bit like you. That is amazing too. You are like the best dad we could ever imagine. And you are like the best mum we could ever dream of. 
because mums and dads show us a glimpse of you. We don't quite know how this can be, but we are very glad it's true. Family-making God, you have brought us together, making us sisters and brothers in the biggest, most amazing family that is called the church. And we thank you for it. Amen. Can you turn towards the back of the red hymn book to number 701? Number 701, which is Psalm 130. And we're going to read this together. And can I invite the women and girls to join me in reading what is printed in ordinary type and the men and boys to reply with what is printed in the bold type. I'm just going to give you a moment to have a glance at it because I would like us to read it as we mean it, not just as some kind of boring exercise. Psalm 130. From the depths of my despair, I call to you, Lord. Hear my cry, O Lord. Listen to my call for help. If you care to record of our sins, who would escape being condemned? But you forgive us, so that we should stand in awe of you. We're going to come to God with a prayer saying sorry for the things that go wrong. Let's pray together. Loving God, being in families and churches is brilliant, but sometimes it can be tricky too. So we come to you now to say sorry for the times that all of us have messed up. We don't always think of other people's desires or needs. Forgive us, Lord. We don't always go the first mile, never mind the extra one. Forgive us, Lord. We don't always give each other the space we need. Forgive us, Lord. We don't always think that we might be the one who is wrong and others right. Forgive us, Lord. We don't always love one another. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to see the good in everyone and to share your love as freely as it is given to us. Amen. Well, we're going to hear a Bible reading now, and after Marilyn's read the Bible reading for us, then I'm going to invite the children and young people to go with Katrina, wherever she's hiding, 
up onto the platform where we've got some activities for you to do. But we're going to listen to this rather strange Bible reading first. Thank you, Marilyn. The scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 35, and it can be found on page 48 of the Pew Bible. Then Jesus went home. Again, such a large crowd gathered that Jesus and his disciples had no time to eat. When his family heard about it, they set out to take charge of him, because people were saying, he's gone mad. Some teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem were saying, he has Beelzebul in him. It is the chief of the demons who give him the power to drive them out. So Jesus called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a country divides itself into groups which fight each other, that country will fall apart. If a family divides itself into groups which fight each other, that family will fall apart. So if Satan's kingdom divides into groups, it cannot last, but will fall apart and come to an end. No one can break into a strong man's house and take away his belongings unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. I assure you that people can be forgiven all their sins and all the evil things they may say. But whoever says evil things against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven because he has committed an eternal sin. Jesus said this because some people were saying he has an evil spirit in him. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. They stood outside the house and sent in a message asking for him. A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, and they want you. Jesus answered, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? He looked at the people sitting around him and said, Look, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does what God wants him to do is my brother, my sister, my mother. Amen. Okay, so if the children would like to go up onto the platform with Katrina, um, I've got some things for you to do. I'm going to talk to the grown-ups. If the grown-ups, we know, fancy going and doing craft with Katrina, that's fine. Um, But your option is to listen to me. I wonder how you felt listening to that passage of scripture. In the part of England where I grew up, the most likely response would be, Ooh, er, missus. Because it's a mighty odd passage of scripture, isn't it? So many little bits that are woven together which actually confuse and bewilder us if we're prepared to listen carefully to them and engage seriously with them. It's a complicated passage and we can't do justice to everything it has to say in the time that we have today. But there are some things that we can look at, albeit very briefly. I'm not convinced that this is a neat, tidy sermon, Rather, it's some areas to ponder for your own reflection and exploration as each one of us listens to see what God is saying to us about our relationships within our family, our relationships with religious authority, and our relationship with Jesus. So let's start with Jesus' relationship with his family. 
any serious study of the Gospels will reveal it's a complicated and sometimes confusing relationship that Jesus has with his family. We know virtually nothing of Joseph, only really what Matthew has to tell us, and even less about Jesus' siblings, though it does appear that he was part of quite a large human family with brothers and sisters. (coughs) The only person we hear anything much about in the scriptures is Mary, his mother. In Luke, we have the story of a young woman who risked public humiliation in bearing a child out of wedlock, and in whose mouths the wonderful word of the Magnificat are recorded. We see her in the temple with her infant son, and those words spoken to her by old people who have faithfully waited. And then we see her again as Jesus reaches the brink of adulthood, and he stays on in the temple, and she, concerned for his safety, comes looking for him. And after that, she gets various other passing mentions along the way. Or in John's Gospel, the very poignant scene at the foot of the cross, where the dying Jesus entrusts his mother to the protection of one of his closest friends and entreats her to receive his friend as a son. These stories can, if we're not careful, lead us to a very romanticised view of the so-called Holy Family. Some kind of ideal, devout household where there was never a cross word spoken, never a poor decision made. And it's because of this romantic view we have that we get shocked and bewildered when we hear words of Jesus that are at best ambivalent and at worst very negative not only about his own human family, but about family relationships in general. In the story we've just heard, it's quite clear that Mary is worried about her eldest son. It seems to her that he has embarked on a path to self-destruction. In a very short period of time, he has received the baptism of John, and has begun a ministry of teaching and wonder-working that is attracting a lot of attention. Some of it is very positive, but by no means all of it. And he's gathered round him a very peculiar group of followers whose background suggests that it was never going to be a quiet or naturally cohesive group. Zealots, tax collectors, fishermen, strange group of people. And he's already begun to breach social norms as he engages with outcasts and sinners and foreigners. He speaks to women on equal terms. He embraces people who are unclean. He forgets to wash his hands before dinner and he performs wonders on the Sabbath. Mary and the family are not angry with Jesus. They're anxious for Jesus. Has he suffered some kind of breakdown? Is he mentally ill? In the translation that we heard, is he mad? Has his religious devotion and contemplation gone too far? They think it has, and they set out to take him home, presumably so they can care for him. 
I'd like to suggest that their act is a loving one, but a misguided one. So what about us? Have we ever made choices or followed paths that have caused our families to fear for us, for our sanity, for our well-being? Have we ever felt it was necessary to turn our back on our families or to walk away from them in order to do or be what we truly believed God was leading us to? Have our motives or our sanity ever been questioned by those who love us most? And if so, how have we handled the emotions, the thoughts, the tugs on our loyalty that arise? Did we do that which we thought was right, or did we just go back and carry on as before? Or have we ever found ourselves in the role of Mary and Jesus siblings, anxious about the choices a family member is making as she or he believes they are following the path to which God has called them, even though to us it appears utterly mad, or at best, misguided? And how have we responded? It's not always easy to hold intention, our commitment to our family and our commitment to follow Christ. If it wasn't enough that Jesus' family thought he'd gone mad, it seems that pretty much from the get-go he was disturbing the religious establishment with what he was doing. Unlike his family, who seemed to have thought Jesus was ill, the authorities decided he was not mad, he was bad. And we need to remember that these were not nasty people who were going out of their way to get him because they didn't like him. They might not have liked him, but that's not initially, at least, the motivation. These were deeply religious people, steeped in the Torah, faithful in prayer, who just wanted to get on with their lives as a faith group permitted under Roman rule to express their religion. Of course they wanted the Romans gone and the liberty they'd once had restored. But the thing is that they'd seen an awful lot of these messiahs come and go already. And each time it brought nothing but heartache and hardship for everyone else as the, the screws tightened and the pressure got harder from the Romans. And so they decide that Jesus is evil. In fact, that what is driving Jesus is not well-intentioned madness, but an evil spirit. Even the personification of evil, that is Satan, or Beelzebub, in the translation we've heard. They clearly haven't thought this through very carefully, because Jesus, true to form, can get right to the heart of it. He responds, it tells us, with parables, or at least with three fairly pithy sayings. How can evil drive out evil, he says? How can bad bring about good? How is it that if I am possessed by Beelzebub, I can set people free from other dark spirits? It doesn't make 
sense. Evil cannot bring about good. You've not quite understood. I think these were basically good people, devout people, who used religious language to condemn that which they couldn't understand and which upset their familiar, comfortable lives. So here's a couple of things for us to ponder. Do we ever find ourselves at odds with the religious authorities because we are convinced God is leading us in a certain direction of thinking or living? Has that ever happened? And if so, how do we react? How have we reacted? Do we become defensive or aggressive? Do we just say, well, you know, that's what God's telling me to do. I'll carry on anyway. Or do we try to engage with the people who question our motives or our orthodoxy or whatever else it might be and try together, genuinely, to listen for God's voice? Or what about us collectively as part of what is judged to be religious orthodoxy? The establishment that basically just wants to get on with its life as a legitimate faith in a secular land. How do we react to those who rock the boat of that comfortable status that we enjoy as Christians by the things they say or the things they do? Do we accuse them of heresy or apostasy? Do we resort to legalism Do we use the language of evil a little bit too freely? What would we be saying to one who, like Jesus, ignored the hidey boundaries that make life comfortable for us? Because whatever we might like to say, Christians in the United Kingdom have a pretty easy life. We only have to look at experiences overseas to understand that. So what will we do, what will we say to those who, like Jesus, start to make that a little bit less comfortable for us? The passage ends with words that we know well and which roll easily from our tongues. Jesus says, those who do God's will are my family. So that's easy, isn't it? Yeah, but what do we mean? By God's will. What is it that Jesus understood himself to be about? Because it's not so easy to pin Jesus down, to make him fit with our opinions and our doctrines, because he always has his habit of crossing the boundary. He's like that child who constantly brings home totally unsuitable friends for tea. I don't know if those of our parents have had that experience or those of us remember the friends that we took home that caused raised eyebrows. You know, the ones, they've not got the right table manners, they don't have the polite language, they trample mud onto the carpet, they cause the neighbours' curtains to twitch. Jesus' family is made of people like us who actually fail to understand what he's about who squabble over differences of opinion, who want our life to be comfy and cosy for us. 
Jesus' family is made of people like us who will sometimes think that he has lost the plot. He is mad. We may even occasionally wonder if he's bad. And then we will wonder, what is this new truth that Jesus shows us of God? Because he is neither mad nor bad. If you do God's will, says Jesus, if you follow me, risking ridicule and rejection from human and religious institutions, then you are to me as my mother, my brothers, and my sister. I could have spent a lot of time wondering what on earth it means for us to be Jesus' mother. I'm really struck by that. But we're not going to go there today. We speak very glibly of each other as being brothers and sisters in Christ. But I wonder where our hearts are. The story we heard follows immediately after Mark's account of Jesus choosing his 12 disciples. The apprentices who will spend three years travelling round with him, learning what it means to follow in the footsteps of the man they will one day come to name as the Christ of God. These men abandon their careers, abandon boats, abandon tax gathering station. They leave behind their wives and their families and set off on a life-changing adventure, seemingly taking very little with them and becoming financially dependent on the goodwill of others. Jesus will continually amaze and confuse them with the things that he says and does. And very often, they won't quite get it. They will know great joy and totally abandoned sadness. Sometimes they will begin to understand, and other times be totally bemused and bewildered. In them, we should see a glimpse of ourselves, of our own stories of discipleship, of learning from Jesus, of our own great highs and crashing lows, our own questions, our own crises, our own insights and our own struggles. One question then, as I finish. When Jesus calls our name and says, come be my apprentice, do we say yes and join in the rough and tumble of the shared life in his eternal family? Even though it could cost us absolutely everything. We come now with our prayers for others, and this morning it's hardly a surprise that we're going to focus on families. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that the concept of family is rooted in the example of your Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we are eternally grateful that it was blessed by the birth of that same son into a real human family. So, Father, and how privileged and blessed we are to be able to use that term as we speak to you. Father, 
we take a few moments to bring the families of the world before you now. Not those who have difficulty deciding which house to live in for their summer holidays or which car to drive to the shops, though they may well need our prayers in a different way. Rather, Father, we pray for those in real need. We can't name them all, but we're convinced that you know them. But we hold up before you just a few. The family in Syria last week, where six of their children were blown up by a government shell as they slept. Please, Lord, grant them courage in their time of despair. We pray for the family of the wee girl who died of cancer last week after a fruitless journey to the other side of the Atlantic. Please hold them together in their grief. We bring before you the families all over the world who suffer from famine, drought, and flood, even those as close as the north of England. May they find support in the wider community. We also remember those who have no living family at all, and those whose children and relatives are estranged or scattered far away. We pray that they will find succor, friendship, help, and love in the communities in which they live. But we take heart that families, as we've been thinking this morning, can be much more than based on blood relations. We pray for the families of nations, the United Nations, the Commonwealth of Nations and the European Community, and there are many, many more. We pray that the peoples of this world may learn that the word is much more powerful than the sword, that giving is so much better than receiving. We pray also for the families of churches. This morning especially we remember the churches of the Baptist Union of Great Britain as they face financial problems and reorganization. And especially we pray for those who are employed by Bugby as they face redundancy and tension, something that they probably never imagined would happen in their employment in a church organization. We pray that great care and courage and love may be shown. We also pray for the families of churches who are threatened by turmoil and division. As issues are raised and are not cleared, as people put prejudice in front of your love. And Father, also we pray for the families in this church. We thank you that we have all sorts represented here. And we thank you for the children who have been part of our worship this morning. 
Lord, we bring before you particularly those who are facing illness, old age, and uncertain futures. We pray that your love will reach out through every one of us. And please, God, help us to be practical. Let us build a house where hands will reach beyond the wood and stone to heal and strengthen, serve and teach, and live the world, the word they've known. Here, the outcast and the stranger bear the image of God's face. Let us bring an end to fear and danger. All are welcome, all are welcome, all are welcome in this place. Please, God, may we live by what we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Community God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, send us out from here to live and work to your praise and glory that we might draw others into the love of your family, not just this week, but always. For we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you.